Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Chronic graft-versus-host disease, or chronic GVHD, occurs in 35 to 50% of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant patients. This disease state is associated with significant morbidity and mortality, including 8 to 13% of patient deaths at or beyond 100 days post-transplant. Historically, treatment options for chronic GVHD have been limited and led to poor disease control. Fortunately, some newly approved therapeutic options for chronic GVHD have made their way to the bedside, and Dr. Marissa Powell, an oncology pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, rocks the chronic GVHD boat to catch us up on these exciting changes. Chronic graft-versus-host disease, or chronic GVHD, occurs in 35 to 50% of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant patients and is the most frequently experienced long-term complication after an allogeneic transplant. 8 to 13% of deaths in patients who died at or beyond 100 days post-transplant are attributable to chronic GVHD. Overall survival at two years is only about 60% in adults with chronic GVHD, and treatment options for chronic GVHD are limited and have historically led to poor disease control. So our objectives today will be to describe mechanisms of chronic GVHD, recognize historical treatment approaches to chronic GVHD, and discuss recent updates in chronic GVHD therapy, including our two newly FDA-approved agents, ruxolitinib and belumosidil. So we'll begin with describing the mechanisms of chronic GVHD. Hematopoietic cell transplant is used in a variety of disease states. The basic concept is that a person undergoes conditioning or chemotherapy that's intended to wipe out their own disease cells and immune system. Then healthy cells from a donor are infused. These new cells have multiple purposes. They can be to replace the malignant cells that were just killed during conditioning chemotherapy, renew normal hematopoiesis in a person whose bone marrow is not functioning correctly, and potentially to identify and kill the patient's malignant cells in what's known as graft versus tumor effect. One of the main toxicities of an allogeneic transplant is graft-versus-host disease, where the newly transplanted immune system recognizes its new host as foreign. The mainstay of GVHD treatment is immunosuppression, which must be carefully balanced and minimized as much as possible to limit toxicities and avoid impeding the possible graft-versus-tumor effect. When the hematopoietic system of a non-self donor is transplanted into a recipient, the resulting inflammation and immune dysregulation can lead to chronic graft-versus-host disease. In other words, this is something that we see in patients who receive an allogeneic transplant that comes from another person and not in an autogeneic transplant, which comes from themselves. So the process of chronic GVHD occurs in three main phases. Phase one is the early inflammation that's triggered by release of inflammatory proteins. This is part of the innate immune process and can lead to organ and vascular endothelial damage. Phase two is chronic inflammation, thymic injury, dysregulated B and T cells, 
antigen presenting cells and natural killer cells, and the decreased recruitment of regulatory cells. This is part of the adaptive immune response and can lead to a lack of immune tolerance. Our third and final phase is aberrant tissue repair and fibrosis, which is triggered by dysregulated donor lymphocytes, irregular tissue repair, the release of pro-fibrotic mediators like TNF-alpha and IL-6, and macrophage and fibroblast activation. This encompasses both the innate and adaptive immune response and can lead to scarring, fibrosis, and ultimately end organ damage. In healthy cells, T cells function to kill infected cells and B cells function to release protective antibodies that help in eliminating infections. In chronic GVHD, self-reactive T cells are stimulated by their host environment and destroy healthy cells. They activate inflammatory responses and produce collagen within tissues, which causes fibrosis and scleroderma. Self-reactive B cells form self-reactive antibody complexes that attack healthy tissue and can deposit within healthy tissue and blood vessels. Our current definitions for chronic GVHD are per the National Institute of Health's 2014 consensus criteria. Acute GVHD is classic if it's presenting within the first 100 days of a patient's transplant. If it initiates beyond day 100, it's then classified as either persistent, recurrent, or late onset. Both types of acute GVHD have acute GVHD features without any chronic features present. Chronic GVHD has no specified time frame. It's classic if there are no features of acute GVHD present, or it may be classified as an overlap syndrome if patients have features of both acute and chronic GVHD. These acute features involve the skin, gut, or liver, and the symptoms that we see are the result of inflammation that's usually reversible. In contrast, chronic GVHD presents more like chronic fibrosis and can affect nearly any organ system. Listed here are the most common organ systems involved in order of descending frequency. These can include the skin, mouth, liver, lung, eyes, muscles, joints, and fascia, gastrointestinal tract, and genitalia. Of note, patients with chronic GVHD often have multiple affected organs. For each involved organ system, there may be diagnostic features, which are bolded and are sufficient alone to diagnose chronic GVHD, distinctive features, which are in the normal text and alone are not sufficient to diagnose chronic GVHD, or they could be common, which are in the italicized text and may be associated with both chronic and acute GVHD. Scoring is also per the NIH criteria, where mild involves only one to two organ systems and does not cause any significant functional impairment. Moderate involves one to two organ sites with clinically significant but no major disabilities. So this would correlate to a maximum score of two in any organ if they only have one to two organs involved. If patients have involvement of three or more organs, they have to have no clinically significant functional impairment, so a maximum score of one in any of those three or more organs. And patients would also be classified as moderate if they have a lung score of one. Severe chronic GVHD is major disability evidenced by a severity score of three in any organ or a score of two or higher in the lung. There are many risk factors that can increase a patient's risk for chronic GVHD after an allogeneic transplant. These include having a history of acute GVHD, use of a reduced intensity conditioning regimen where the host's immune system is not completely wiped out and thus may interact with the transplanted cells. It could be stem cell sores, 
we see higher risk with peripheral blood precursor cells than we do with bone marrow or umbilical cord blood transplants. Utilizing additional donor lymphocyte infusions, HLA disparity where the donor is not matched to the recipient. Here we see the highest risk with mismatched unrelated donors and the lowest risk would be with matched related donors. Sex mismatch, doing a male to female or female to male transplant. Older age of the donor or recipient, previous use of an immune checkpoint inhibitor, which is which the intention of that is to ramp up the immune system, having a history of splenectomy or a donor who is CMV or EBV positive. So that brings us to our first participation question. So if everyone can get out their cell phones or computers and go to pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333 to join. Our question is, which patient is most likely to experience chronic graft versus host disease? Traces are A, an autologous transplant in a 35-year-old male, B, an allogeneic peripheral blood stem cell transplant from a mismatched, unrelated, CMV-positive female donor to a 75-year-old male recipient, or C, an allogeneic bone marrow transplant from a matched, related, CMV-negative male donor to a 45-year-old male recipient. All right, so I've got quite a few results coming in, and the correct answer is what the majority has picked here. It's B. So for A, um, this should not be as much of a concern because we really don't see chronic GVHD in our autologous transplant patients. B was the correct answer, and our risk factors here were that this was a peripheral blood stem cell transplant from a mismatched unrelated donor. The donor was CMV positive. There was a sex mismatch from a female donor to a male recipient, and the age of the recipient was on the older end. C is also possible to experience chronic GVHD, but they just have less risk factors than our patient in uh, situation B. So now we'll move on to our second objective, which is to recognize historical approaches to the treatment of chronic GVHD. The first step in treatment is often topical therapy, particularly topical steroids. We can also utilize topical azathioprine or calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus when available, or perform targeted UV therapy to decrease that inflammatory immune response. Systemic steroids are the first-line treatment for moderate to severe chronic GVHD. Systemic steroids are indicated for patients with moderate to severe chronic GVHD involving three or more organs or with a score of two or higher in any one organ system. There are no randomized controlled trials available to guide the optimal steroid dosing to use in this setting, but our standard initial dose is one milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone. In patients who are stable or improving after two weeks of therapy, we can consider a 25% dose reduction with the intent to taper off over six to eight weeks, though this is very patient specific and tapering should be guided based on clinical response. In patients who are not improving after one to two weeks, we should consider addition of a second agent. So we know there's lots of downsides to steroids. I've highlighted some of the bigger side effects that we see here, um, particularly cardiac, like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, fluid retention, and electrolyte disturbances, psychiatric and behavioral side effects, like insomnia, mood changes, and agitation, GI side effects, like peptic ulcers, hyperglycemia, osteoporosis, myopathy, and an increased risk of infections. We can also see suppression of that graft versus tumor effect that I mentioned when we used steroids. 
um, it, the steroids will just calm the immune system. And that's what we hope is fighting off the patient's malignant cells as well. We do see a two-year cumulative incidence of relapse of the patient's underlying disease during initial systemic therapy of about 11% in these patients. And finally, steroids just might not be effective. Only about a third of patients respond to initial steroid therapy. So our definition of steroid refractory is chronic GVHD progression while on prednisone at a dose of one milligram per kilogram per day or higher for one to two weeks, or patients with stable chronic GVHD while on at least 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day for one to two months. Our definition of steroid dependent is repeated symptom flares during a taper of steroids less than 0.25 milligrams per kilogram per day. Chronic GVHD becomes steroid refractory or steroid dependent in about 50% of patients. Less than 20% of patients with chronic GVHD achieve durable, partial, or complete response at one year after their initial steroid therapy without any additional systemic therapy. And over 70% of patients will require subsequent lines of therapy, just owing to the toxicity and the lack of efficacy associated with steroids. So we really need more targeted and tolerable approaches that will directly address the inflammation and fibrosis associated with chronic GVHD without suppressing the immune system. So ibrutinib was our first FDA-approved drug for second-line treatment of chronic GVHD. Its mechanism is through Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibition, and BTK is something that regulates activated B-cell survival. Ibrutinib also inhibits interleukin-2 inducible T-cell kinase, which is involved in self-reactive T-cell activation. It was FDA approved in 2017 for the treatment of chronic GVHD in adults after failure of one or more lines of systemic therapy. It's dosed at 420 milligrams orally once daily, and common side effects include hypertension, GI toxicity, particularly diarrhea, mild cytopenias, particularly an increase in bleed risk, fatigue, and arrhythmia. We do have drug-drug interactions with this agent as it is a major CYP3A4 substrate, and many of our patients are going to be on azoles for fungal prophylaxis after transplant, and so we often have to dose-adjust ibrutinib. Ibrutinib was FDA-approved based on the results of this trial, which is a, was a phase 1B-2 open-label multicenter study. They included patients with chronic GVHD that had failed one to three prior lines of therapy. 67% of them were steroid dependent, 14% were steroid refractory, and the remaining 19% were classified as both steroid dependent and refractory. The most commonly involved organs were the mouth and skin, with many patients having multiple organs involved. Their primary endpoint was chronic GVHD response based on the NIH criteria. Response was seen in 28% of patients. Most of these, about 19%, were partial responses, but 9% did experience a complete response. 7% of patients had stable disease, and only 2% of patients progressed while on ibrutinib. The median time to response was 87 days, so this is somewhat of a slow onset. And of the patients that did have a response, 71% showed a sustained response for over 20 weeks. So this agent does demonstrate some good duration of effect. Responses were observed across organ systems, but the best response were in those with mouth, skin, or GI involvement. Most patients were able to reduce their steroid dose and five patients were even able to come off steroids altogether. 
And the most common side effects in this study were fatigue, diarrhea, nausea, muscle spasms, bruising, and atrial fibrillation. So a similar side effect profile to what we see when we use this agent for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Listed in this table are some of our most common agents used for second-line treatment of chronic GVHD in steroid refractory or steroid-dependent patients. Our three that are bolded at the top are our FDA-approved agents. So ibrutinib is the BTK inhibitor we just discussed. Ruxolitinib is a JAK inhibitor, and volumosidil is a RAF inhibitor, and we'll discuss these two agents in further detail in our next objective. Some other commonly used agents include extracorporeal photophoresis, which is a photochemotherapy that uses light-activated drug for selective leukapheresis. It's mostly used in skin and lung chronic GVHD, has side effects of thrombocytopenia and response rates of about 60 to 80%. Tacrolimus is a commonly used calcium urine inhibitor, particularly in oral, skin, and liver GVHD, with side effects of renal dysfunction, neurotoxicity, and hypertension, and response rates of 60 to 95%. Mycophenolate acts by inhibiting T and B cell proliferation, is mainly used in GI GVHD, and has side effects of GI toxicity, neutropenia, and hypertension, with a response rate of 40 to 57%. Rituximab is our anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody that's used in skin and musculoskeletal involvement, has a risk of infection and response rates of 50 to 80%. And finally, sirolimus is an mTOR inhibitor used in skin, oral, and lower GI GVHD, and has adverse effects of peripheral edema, hyperlipidemia, cytopenias, and a response rate of 56 to 81%. Some additional options that are used less frequently include bortezomib, hydroxychloroquine, imatinib, interleukin-2, pentostatin, and pomalidomide. There's no clear guidance on the best second-line therapy. This is really very patient and institution-specific. And of note, there are currently over 20 clinical trials underway to test other agents in this setting of the second-line treatment of chronic GVHD. So we'll finish this section with another patient case we have a patient that presents on day 180 post-allogeneic stem cell transplant with abnormal liver function tests suggestive of chronic GVHD of the liver with an NIH score of two. What do you recommend as initial treatment? Choices are mycophenolate, one gram twice daily, prednisone, one milligram per kilogram per day, dexamethasone, 100 milligrams daily, or budesonide, six milligrams daily. Okay, so seeing a little bit of a split here, but still our most common answer is the correct answer, which is B, prednisone. So mycophenolate is one of our second line treatments, and it really has the best evidence for use in GI GVHG rather than liver. Prednisone is our correct answer as systemic steroids are our initial standard therapy, and that dosing of prednisone one milligram per kilogram per day is our standard starting dose. Dexamethasone is another systemic steroid, but that dose is far too high, and budesonide is not systemically absorbed. So we'll now move in to our third and final objective, which is to discuss recent updates in chronic GVHD therapy. Our first drug is ruxolitinib, or brand name Jacophy. This drug acts by selectively inhibiting JAK1 and JAK2. JAK1's major role is in signaling of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and JAK2 acts by mediating signals for hematopoietic growth factors. Ruxolitinib also interrupts the JAK-STAT pathway, and this interferes with signaling by pro-inflammatory cytokines, 
trafficking of T cells and innate immune cells to tissues, proliferation and activation of T cells, and suppression of regulatory T cells. So um, we have here the REACH-3 study, which was looking at ruxolitinib for glucocorticoid refractory chronic GVHD. There are preclinical studies that show that JAK1 and JAK2 signaling is crucial in the steps leading to the inflammation and tissue damage in both acute and chronic GVHD. There's retrospective data suggesting ruxolitinib's efficacy in patients with steroid refractory or steroid-dependent chronic GVHD, but a lack of robust randomized controlled trial data that evaluates ruxolitinib in this setting. So the REACH-1 and REACH-2 trials led to the approval of ruxolitinib for acute GVHD, and now we have the REACH-3 trial, which assessed ruxolitinib in chronic GVHD. This was a phase three open-label randomized trial that randomized 329 patients to ruxolitinib 10 milligrams twice daily or investigator's choice, which could be 10 different options listed below on this slide. They include, included patients 12 years of age or older who had undergone an allogeneic stem cell transplant, had moderate or severe glucocorticoid refractory or dependent chronic GVHD, and they could be on calcineurin inhibitors but didn't have to be. They excluded patients previously treated with at least two systemic therapies in addition to glucocorticoids, had any relapse of their primary cancer or graft lost within the six months before treatment, or patients who had active uncontrolled infections. For baseline characteristics, the median age of participants was 49 and about two thirds of patients were male. All patients were on steroids and over half were also on a calcineurin inhibitor, so either tacrolimus or cyclosporin. Over half of patients had severe chronic GVHD and the most common sites of involvement were the skin, mouth, and eyes, with many patients having more than one organ involved. Comparators are listed in the table on the right. The most common were extracorporeal photophoresis, mycophenolate, or ibrutinib. For their efficacy outcomes, their primary outcome was overall response at week 24. Overall response was defined as a complete or partial response per the 2014 NIH criteria. An overall response was observed in 49.7% of patients on ruxolitinib and only 25.6% of those in the control group. The majority of responses in both groups were partial responses, which are shown in the light blue, and there were low rates of complete responses, which are shown in the dark blue, in both groups. Their secondary outcomes are listed in the table. So failure-free survival was defined as the time to recurrence of their underlying disease, start of new systemic treatment for chronic GVHD, or death, whichever came first. And the median failure-free survival was longer in the ruxolitinib group, 18.6 months, versus only 5.7 months in the control group. Their median response duration was 6.24 months in the control group and has not yet been reached in the ruxolitinib arm, but there are 68.5% of those who had a response to ruxolitinib at 24 weeks that maintain their response at 12 months. So we do see a good duration of response uh, with ruxolitinib. Investigators use the modified Lee symptom scale to assess symptom response. This scale measures the symptoms of chronic GVHD on a scale of zero to 100 with higher scores indicating worse symptoms. A reduction was defined as a seven point or higher drop on that scale. 
and there were higher rates of reduction seen with the Ruxolitinib group, 24.4% versus only 11% in our control group. Additionally, there was a trend towards greater reduction in steroid use with the Ruxolitinib group. So this figure looks at organ-specific overall response rate at that 24-week mark. We see better outcomes with ruxolitinib than our control arm in all organ sites that are assessed in this study, including the eyes, GI, genital, joints and fascia, liver, lung, skin, and mouth. For their safety outcomes, rates of adverse events were, were slightly higher with ruxolitinib, but adverse events of grade three or higher severity were similar between groups. The most common adverse events are hematologic, and others can include transaminase or creatinine elevation, hyperglycemia, hypercholesterolemia, and increased pancreatic enzymes. So monitoring for patients on ruxolitinib generally includes doing CBCs, renal and hepatic function, lipids, and pancreatic enzymes. At their data caught off, about 50% of patients had discontinued ruxolitinib, which was still less than the 74% that discontinued control therapy. In the ruxolitinib group, 14.5% of these discontinuations were for lack of efficacy, 17% were for adverse events, and 5.5% were for relapse of their underlying disease. So our big conclusions from the REACH-3 study are that ruxolitinib showed a greater overall response a better failure-free survival, better symptom response, and a trend towards less steroid use. And we also did see increased toxicity, particularly hematologic and liver toxicity. So based on this study, ruxolitinib was approved in September of 2021 for chronic GVHD after failure of one or two lines of systemic therapy in adult and pediatric patients 12 years and older. It's dosed at 10 milligrams orally twice daily, and we can consider tapering after six months in patients who have discontinued systemic steroids. We do have dose modifications for toxicity, renal and hepatic impairment, and drug interactions, as ruxolitinib is also a major CYP3A4 substrate. Adverse events are, again, primarily hem hematologic and liver, the most that we're concerned about is the thrombocytopenia, but we can also see anemia and neutropenia. And some final clinical pearls to take our, away are that the onset for this drug is two to three weeks to see a reduction in chronic GVHD symptoms, and ruxolitinib can be an option for any organ involvement. So that brings us to our next drug, which is Belumocidil, or brand name Resurac. Belumocidil acts through two primary pathways, reducing inflammation and reducing fibrosis. So in the inflammatory pathway, we see that in chronic GVHD, RAC2 interacts with and phosphorylates STAT3, leading to the formation of the JAK2 STAT3 complex and the upregulation of helper T cells. RAC2 inhibition decreases that activation of STAT3 which triggers the significant downregulation of both type 17 and follicular helper T cells, leading to ultimately a decrease in pro-inflammatory cytokines. Belumocidil also increases phosphorylation of STAT5, which causes the upregulation of regulatory T cells. In the fibrotic pathway, we see that in chronic GVHD, ROC2 polymerizes G-actin to F-actin. This frees a transcription factor which leads to the transcription of pro-fibrotic genes and increased collagen production. 
Volumosidyl prevents this polymerization of G-actin to F-actin and thus reduces fibrotic gene expression. So this is the results of the Rockstar study that looked at volumosidyl for chronic graft-versus-host disease after two or more prior lines of therapy. More targeted and tolerable approaches are needed that will directly address that inflammation and fibrosis associated with chronic GVHD without directly suppressing the immune system. RAC2 inhibition with volumosidyl targets both inflammation and, and fibrosis that's associated with chronic GVHD. And so this phase two randomized multi-center study enrolled 132 patients with chronic GVHD and randomly assigned them to receive volumosidyl at 200 milligrams once daily or twice daily. They included patients that were 12 years of age or older, had undergone allogeneic stem cell transplant, had persistent chronic GVHD after receiving two to five prior lines of therapy, had a good performance status indicated by a Karnofsky performance score of greater than or equal to 60, and had been on stable steroid therapy for at least two weeks. They excluded any patients with relapse of their underlying malignancy, baseline hepatic dysfunction, or an NIH lung symptom score of three. For their baseline characteristics, the median age was 56 and three quarters of patients were male. The overall median number of organs involved was four and this ranged from one to seven. And the most common organs included in this study were skin, joints and fascia, eyes, mouth, and lungs. All patients were on at least one other type of concurrent treatment. And most commonly, this was either tacrolimus, extracorporeal photophoresis, or serolimus. For our efficacy outcomes, the primary endpoint was the best overall response rate at any time, and this was defined as the proportion of patients who achieved a complete response or partial response according to the 2014 NIH consensus criteria. We found that in the total population, the best overall response rate was 76% overall, and this was slightly better with the BID dosing. So 77% in those patients that received it twice daily and 74% in patients who received it once daily. Corticosteroid doses were reduced in most patients with the most robust reductions seen in patients on twice daily dosing and in those who were responders. About 20% of patients were even able to discontinue their steroid. We saw a median duration of treatment of 10 months and the overall all median time to response was five weeks, so slightly longer than the two to three weeks that we saw with rexalitinib. About 91% of responses occurred within the first six months of treatment, and the median duration of response was 54 weeks in the responder population, so a really good duration of benefit with velumocidil. Here we have the organ-specific rates of overall response with, again, our complete responses in light blue and our partial responses in the darker blue. The best responses here are seen in the joints, GI, and mouth, but we do see responses in all organs. So this is another agent that can be used across the board for all different types of chronic GVHD. For our safety outcomes, drug-related adverse events were seen in about two-thirds of patients. Interestingly, this was a little bit higher in the once daily than the twice daily dosing group. Grade three adverse events that were seen in 5% or more of patients included pneumonia, hypertension, and hyperglycemia. Liver-related adverse events were also seen in about a quarter of patients, so LFTs should be monitored at least monthly while patients are on this therapy. 
over half of patients discontinued treatment during the follow-up period. This was due to adverse events in 28% of patients, progression of chronic GVHD in 21%, possible belumosidil-related adverse events in 16%, or progression of underlying malignancy in 5%. So our conclusions from the Rockstar study are that belumosidil was associated with high overall response rates, sustained responses, favorable safety profile, and similar efficacy between both doses. It's also associated um, with more discontinuations for adverse events in that BID dosing group than the once daily. And um, we do need placebo-controlled studies for true assessment of this drug. So belumosidil was FDA approved in July of 2021 based on this Rockstar study for patients 12 years or older with chronic GVHD after failure of two or more prior lines of systemic therapy. Its FDA approved dose is the 200 milligrams once daily given with a meal. So we really have to think about this in our patients with uh, chronic GVHD of the gut that are often not able to tolerate a full meal. We have to do dose modifications for drug interactions. This drug as well is a major CYP3A4 substrate, and in addition, it's a minor CYP2C8 and CYP2D6 substrate. We do have to increase the dose to twice daily in patients who are on a PPI, so we should really be trying to get our patients off of these proton pump inhibitors and use an H2 blocker if possible, or maybe consider an alternative agent in patients who are not able to come off of a proton pump inhibitor. It has not been studied in patients with renal or hepatic impairment, so use cautiously in those patients as well. Adverse events are that it's generally pretty well tolerated. We do see some um, gastrointestinal headache, hypertension, and liver function test abnormalities. So our clinical pearls to take away from this are that it does have a median time to response of five weeks, and it's a good option for any organ. It's really gonna be best for joints, GI, and mouth. I did wanna bring up some cost considerations that come into play with both of these new agents. Just based on the average wholesale price per tablet, ruxolitinib costs about $300 and belumosidil costs $620. So our average monthly cost based on that AWP is around $18,000 for ruxolitinib and $19,000 for belumosidil. And as I mentioned, um, in patients who are on a proton pump inhibitor, you do have to do twice daily dosing. So that cost also doubles for those patients. We have payer assistance programs available for both drugs. That's Insight Cares for Ruxolitinib and Cadmon Assist for Belumosidil. And both drugs also have grant programs available. All right, so we will finish with our final participation question. A provider is considering initiation of either belumosidil or ruxolitinib on a patient and asks your opinion on appropriateness and dosing. What are some follow-up questions that you can ask? Choices are A, what other medications are they on? B, what type of chronic GVHD do they have? C, what is their insurance coverage? Or D, all of the above. All right, so I'm glad that everyone's getting this one correct. I know this was an easy question, but I really wanted this opportunity to drive home some of these final points. So for option A, what other medications are they on? Really thinking about how both of these drugs are CYP3A4 substrates and belumosidil has that additional interaction with proton pump inhibitors. 
For what type of chronic GVHD do they have? Both drugs are appropriate to use across the board for all different types, but we do see slightly different response rates between the two agents. So looking into those specific responses and maybe picking the higher one for that patient's particular type of GVHD could be an option on how to decide. And then C, what is their insurance coverage? As I mentioned, these drugs are really expensive. They take weeks and maybe even months to see their benefit. And they also have good durations where patients could potentially be on these agents for a very long time. So thinking about that, this financial toxicity is really important before just starting one of these medications. So our correct answer was D, all of the above. So our conclusions are that chronic GVHD is a common complication of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant that's associated with high morbidity and mortality. Steroids are the mainstay of treatment, but are ineffective as monotherapy in many patients. And the optimal treatment of chronic GVHD requires individualized approach for each patient. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.